we thought, I thought it'd be appropriate today to try to connect both the theme we've been working through through the fall on encounters with Jesus with Christmas time. So what better thing to do than put both of those together? Um, I have a tradition. I don't know. We all have kind of Christmas traditions. I always like to sit down and watch a Christmas carol every Christmas. But I only watched the 1984 uh, George, yeah, George, George C. Scott version of that. I, he's just the best for me. So anyway, that's kind of a, kind of a tradition. And, and um, when I was younger, I used to watch things like How the Grinch Stole Christmas. But I've gotten over that um, over the years. But what interests me with some of these stories around Christmas is you normally have somebody who is in opposition to, right? Who, who kind of comes around. What I couldn't help thinking about is that the first Christmas has all the elements of a great drama that far surpasses any of the contemporary ones that we know. And the difference is, it was true. So I want you to come back with me and look at a very, very familiar text. And I want to look at how different characters encounter Christ at Christmas. And what I'm hoping that you will do as we go through this is ask yourself, which one of those characters are you closest to and why? Fair enough? So let's kind of walk through the story, and hopefully you'll be able to identify. And I know we're really covering familiar territory. If you've never heard any of these names before, you just haven't been around a church very long. Like, Herod, like, Herod, I've never heard that name before. So, so I certainly recognize these are familiar characters. But as we come to them, I think there's some really, really powerful lessons we can learn. So if you have your Bibles, turn, turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 2. We'll kind of look at this in two movements as we work our way through the text. Oh, I want to say one other thing to, to piggyback on what Tim said for next week. I hope you'll invite folks out. Um, I'm just going to give, um, hopefully, a, a shorter message next week, uh, but it will be very gospel-driven. And we, I hope every message is, but it will be really focused on that next week, so hopefully you'll keep that in mind. Uh, so let's look how the text begins. Any good story has to have setting and inciting incident, and this one certainly has that. The Bible says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard it, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Now, to give you a little bit of historical background, because sometimes you can read through that rather quickly. Like when the text says, now Herod was troubled and all Jerusalem with him, don't go by that too quickly. Because the more you know about Herod, the more you go, wow. I'll give you a couple historical dates to keep in mind. Jesus was born probably in about 6 B.C. Now you say to yourself, well, that seems kind of weird. Don't you have like before Christ. So Christ was born before Christ. 
problem is the monk who designed the calendar that we, that we work off of uh, was a couple years off. Okay, so we're kind of stuck with that, but it is what it is. So Jesus is born around 6 BC, and, 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 and Herod the Great, who's mentioned here, dies in 4 BC. Okay, just to kind of give you some dates. What do we know about Herod? Well, and you'll see how this all kind of ties together. 40 BC, Herod the Great is going to become king of the Jews. But you know what happened right before that? He was part, he was one of the governors in the area of Judea with his brother. And and what happened is there was this insurrection stuff going on, and to the east of Judea, the area that we typically call today, that we, we know as Iraq um, and Iran, those kinds of areas, Iraq in particular, the area that we typically understand as Babylon, that was called Parthia at that particular time in the Roman Empire. What happened for Herod before he became king, when he was just governing, Rome and Parthia constantly had this tension back and forth. Who would control that border area? And what happened is Parthia came pushing into town, and Herod barely made it out of town with his life, and he ran to Rome. And the Parthians had control of that area until the Romans came in and pushed them back again and made Herod king of the Jews. Herod's brother ended up committing suicide. He didn't make it out. So Herod is always a little bit nervous when he thinks of Parthia because he almost lost his life in that whole mix. He's king from 40 to 4 B.C., which is when he dies. About two years, and there's a little bit of debate, but roughly two years before he dies, around 6 B.C., Christ is born in 6 B.C., and somewhere between 6 B.C., it could be 5 B.C., we don't know exactly, Magi come into town. You know where the Magi are from? The Magi are from Parthia. They were very significant individuals. They were astrologers. They were probably part of a priestly caste. And they had always put their thumb of approval on the king of Parthia. So here you are, Herod the king, maybe around, I don't know, we don't know exactly, 5 to 4 B.C. Here you are, Herod the king. Parthia, which always makes you nervous, there's a bunch of Parthian kingmakers who come storming into town, into Jerusalem. And mark it down, folks. There wouldn't have been just three kings of Orient are. I know we sing that. We three kings. We don't know exactly how many they were. But however many came in, you can imagine they had all kinds of soldiers with them too. This was an entourage. And they come into town to find a king. Let me tell you something else about Herod. Herod, toward the end of his life, became absolutely paranoid that somebody was going to take the kingdom away from him. So much so that he knocks off any opposition to him, including his own sons. He'll kill them. 
A son seems to be a threat. Rumors, dead. One of his boys was in prison, heard that his father may have died, was going like, yeah, and the father heard about it, killed him. I mean, that's who Herod was. And toward the end of his life, his last couple of years, um, Caesar even had a comment about him. It's a play on words in the Greek, but he basically says, it'd be better off to be Herod's pig than it would be his son because he's killing them off so quickly. I mean, this was his rumor. And he's just knocking people off, anybody that's a threat, because Herod has become king. He is now paranoid. He's toward the end of his rule. And he's saying, nobody will take this from me. And Parthian kingmakers come strolling into town with a huge entourage and say, where is he born king of the Jews? So when Matthew says, Herod was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Yeah, I guess so. Because if Herod's troubled, you're troubled. Because you're living in Jerusalem. Do do you see? I mean, that's how it works. And Herod, who has held so tightly to this all his life, tells himself, I will win this one too. And he never opens up his hand, does he? So watch how the text develops. When Herod heard it, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. But Herod is a politician par excellent. So he knows you can't confront these guys directly. So he comes up with a really interesting way to kind of work through this. So look at what he does in verse 4. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people... He began to inquire of them where the Christ was to be born. Now, here's what's interesting to me. The religious leaders knew immediately where Christ would be born, didn't they? They knew Micah 5 too. Look what they said. They said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And Herod thinks, okay, I'm in Jerusalem. There's Bethlehem. Here's his plan, verse 7. Remember, he's a politician par excellent. Herod, Then Herod secretly called the Magi and ascertained from them the time the star had appeared. Wouldn't you like to know what that was like? Oh, this is so wonderful about this king being, this king of the Jews being born. I I, I share your love for this. I've I've been waiting for who this person would be. It's really, who knows all the stuff he's just shoveling at that particular point. And and tell me me exactly, when did the star first appear? And and, and what was the star? At the end of the day, I have no idea. Some people think it's a constellation of the planets, and others suggest it's a supernova. And um, my guess, if if you push me to the limit, I think I would probably say it's just the unique Shekinah glory of God. Something like Israel was led through the wilderness with a pillar of uh, the cloud uh, during the day and the pillar of fire by night. Something, something miraculous makes the most sense to me just because the way the star appears and disappears and reappears and all that kind of stuff. It makes the most sense. 
So anyway, here it says, so tell me when exactly you saw the story. And he's calculating because he wants to know something. How old is this kid? Right? And the Magi don't pull into Bethlehem, folks, on Christmas, on the first Christmas. Jesus could be as much as two years old when they finally get there. Maybe a year. But Herod is calculating. He's brilliant. He wants to know all the details because he wants to know everything he can about this king. Right? Supposedly. For his own purposes. Verse 8. He then sends them to Bethlehem and says, Go and make careful search for the child. And when you have found him, report to me that I too may come and worship him. Really? No, it's, it's, it's all contrived. And having heard the king, they went their way. And lo, the star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over where the Christ child was. Okay. I had a question for you. And, and when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I, I know why Herod didn't go to Bethlehem. I get that. He was waiting his time, right? I mean, you can't come in and, and kill a would-be king when Parthian kingmakers are there. It just nothing would work. It just wouldn't work. So I understand what Herod's doing. I don't quite understand what the religious leaders are doing or not doing. I mean, if I'm a scribe, a Jewish scribe, and the king comes and says, Finkbeiner, that's an interesting Jewish name, um, where is he born king of the Jews? And I say clearly, Micah 5, 2, it's Bethlehem. Aren't you waiting for me to do something? Like, maybe go along? Check it out? But they do nothing. Well, they're afraid of Herod. I, I get it. But still, they do nothing. Interesting. Well, notice what happens when they get there. They, verse 11, they came into the house and saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they, they must have wondered, this is a pretty simple upbringing for the king of the Jews. I mean, folks, those magi traveled almost 900 miles. That trip from Babylon to Jerusalem talk, took Ezra with women and children four months in the book of Ezra. So I don't know that it took them four months. It may have taken them three months or so to get there. They're going to take six months out of their lives to travel to Bethlehem and to worship this new king. That's amazing to me. When they came, these, these royal, king-making, priestly astrologers, they fell down and worshipped him. And opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They are the gifts of a king. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed for their own country by another way. And this, this first movement, verses 1 to 12, what happens is Herod's kind of in the background. Now, you're concerned about him, you know? But in the foreground, 
is the Magi and the Christ child. And they come, and at great cost to themselves, cost of time, cost of money, cost of potential reputation for tracking this story, the whole thing, the whole thing. They come, and they worship a child that's no more than two years of age. It's amazing, isn't it? And then when they're done, the entire entourage goes home. But it does not go back to Herod. Wouldn't you hated to be in the court in this period of time? Can you, I mean, you're always on pins and needles in Herod's court. But pins and needles off the charts on steroids at this time. Because you know he's waiting for them to come back. Did they come back yet? Oh, no, not, not yet, sir. We're still kind of waiting on that. Are they here? No. Mm, not yet. You know, I mean, I don't know what that discussion was like, but you know it went on. And Herod waited and waited, and finally a messenger came in and told him, uh, they're not in Bethlehem, and they've gone home. And Herod is irate. And in the second scene, the Magi's fade out, and who comes to the center is Herod and Joseph and the Christ child. Watch what happens. Verse 13. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Whenever Joseph has a dream, he must think to himself, oh, no, <laughs> not again, right? I mean, like, in chapter 1, now, it's not that they're bad, but he knows whenever he gets a dream, major life change <laughs> every time, right? And what's so fascinating in the story, if you go back and read in chapter 1, the story in verses 18 to 25, and, and then again, these two other scenes. Three times the angel comes to Joseph. And three times the text says the same thing. The angel says, I want you to go, and I want you to do this. And the text will say, and Joseph arose and did this. Exact same words. He does exactly what he's told to do. I, I want to know what he's thinking. When I get to heaven, I'm going to ask him. But I'm so challenged by what he does. They're still enjoying this moment. Hey, Parthian kingmakers, come, they worship our king, and they are son, and wow. And then all of a sudden he goes to sleep, and in the middle of the night, this is what he hears. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph and said, Arise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. Verse 14. This is Joseph every time. And he arose and took the child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt. And was there until the death of Herod that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled saying... Out of Egypt did I call my son. So Joseph's asleep. He gets this dream. He knows it's from the angel of God. He, he wakes up. And folks, you, you think to yourself, well, okay. So you get a couple plane tickets, hop on a plane, head down there, spend some time in the vacation land of Egypt, and then, you know, whatever. It was totally, totally would have changed his life. A 250-mile trek. Who does he know in Egypt? 
Now, it's true, there's a lot of Jews in Egypt at this time. Fair enough. But I don't know that he knows any of them. Do you know how hard that is? Doesn't know the language. All the stuff of culture. And he takes his wife with this young child and they flee as quick as they can. They can't have any going away parties. There's no time. And they're gone. And you know what's amazing to me? I don't know that Joseph ever knew what Matthew tells us in verse 15. I don't know if he necessarily even made the connection. But Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he goes back and he looks at Hosea 11.1. 1, he says, God has always been this God who has watched over his people and has taken Israel and he's brought them out of Egypt to give them something even better because he is God. And Matthew says, what Joseph does in panic as he runs to Egypt, God says, go. He's fulfilling Scripture. We are still seeing a God who sovereignly is watching over His ultimate Son, Jesus Christ. Do you see? I don't know how much of that Joseph knew. All he knew was, God, tell me what to do. And at whatever cost, I'll do it. That's all he knew. Verse 16. What a tragic text. Especially on a day when we celebrate newborn life. But look at what happens. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged. That's not a good thing. And sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all of its environs from two years old and under, according to the time he had ascertained from the Magi. That deceptive, wicked man had the timetable already figured out, didn't he? And he was enraged, and he did in that moment what he was going to do anyway. And he sent his soldiers, and he said, I don't know, this kid is somewhere between around one-ish year, one year of age or something. I don't know exactly. Kill them all, two years and younger. We're not taking any chances. And probably, from what we know archaeologically of the size of Bethlehem of that day, probably was no more than 15 children. But if one of those children was yours, that would be a pure tragedy. Do you see? And Herod is enraged, and he has these children killed. All the, 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 the men, the, the, the boys. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. And now we have this quote from Jeremiah 31. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. You know what Matthew is telling us? Matthew is seeing pure tragedy. But he's seeing as Christ flees to Egypt, it happens under the sovereign watch care of a God who will protect him. And as Herod does his wicked act to all these children, 
God, God allows it. But God is reminding us of our need for a Messiah. Because Jeremiah is talking about Israel gone into exile, having walked away from God without hope until God brings them back. What we find out in this text is in the first century under Herod the Great, the nation is still in exile. The nation is still in need of a Messiah to come and turn everything around. And that Messiah will be Jesus Christ. And it is an absolute tragedy. But it is telling us we are right on the cusp of hope and transformation. Verse 19. When Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Listen to the words, very similar. Arise, take the child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he arose and took the child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. Now, here's a problem, folks. When he came back to Judea, Herod the Great's kingdom had been broken up under his sons. A fellow by the name of Antipas was going to be in charge of Galilee and Perea. His son Archelaus was going to be in charge of Judea. And if you know anything historically about Archelaus, the, 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 the writer Josephus tells us all about him. He had all of the wickedness and vileness of his father Herod, but none of the savvy of his father Herod. He didn't last that long. By 6 AD, man, even the emperor couldn't stand him anymore, and he had him kicked out. But he, he, he was wicked off the charts. So they're coming back to Israel, and although Jesus is not being specifically sought out now, Archelaus is not the kind of ruler you want to be around. So notice what in verse 22. When Joseph heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he departed for the regions of Galilee and came and resided in the city called Nazareth, that what was spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. So, politically, all kinds of wickedness and terrible things are happening, but a sovereign God is constantly fulfilling the Old Testament in the entire process. And, and, and Nazareth was like a third-rate town in a third-rate area called Galilee in a third-rate country called Israel. That's no place for a king. Ah. But this king would live as a commoner. Do you see? And so, all this stuff going on politically, but a sovereign God is just fulfilling the Scripture all the way through the entire process. So what do we learn? God sovereignly protects King Jesus and clearly points others to him. It doesn't mean people will come, but it does mean they have no excuse. People either attempt to attack Jesus, ignore Jesus, or joyfully 
Embrace Jesus regardless of the cost. And so I want you to put yourself into one of these characters. Herod. He, he wouldn't just say, bah humbug, when it, when it came to Christmas time. He would say, get rid of the Christ child altogether. He, he lives his entire life attacking what God wants to do. Are there people like that in our world? Are, are there any people that say, Christ, Christmas, Christianity, Christ, Jesus the only way, bah humbug. Let's stop it. Absolutely. I doubt, frankly, that we have many of them in here today. <laughs> you know, you don't normally come to church saying, I hate Christianity, but I'm a, I consistently come to the chapel. I, probably be unusual. But we live in a world where that stuff goes on. You shouldn't be surprised. You shouldn't be surprised with, with what you see with advertisers. You shouldn't be surprised with what you hear at the workplace. The second group, the group that ignores Jesus, that would be the religious leaders. Is it possible to go through Christmas time and forget Christ? To kind of dance around him, but not really engage with him? Happens all the time. Maybe. Yeah, I mean, you're here, and that's good. But how significant is Christ in your life? I mean, if I asked you, hey, where was he born? Boop, Micah 5, 2, Bethlehem of Judea. Boom, you got it for me. You know the facts. Would you just play Christianity? Or is Christ everything to you? I, I fear in every church we have religious leaders who know the game, can give us facts, but they have no vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ. And I would call you at this Christmas season, come and adore him. The last group, those that embrace Christ at great cost. My guess is that's the heart's desire of most of the people sitting here today. You, you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. In your heart of hearts, you want him to be Lord of all. Because I, 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 his spirit's working in your heart. I believe that. But that doesn't mean we don't resist it. And I wonder, what has Christ cost you this year? I know what Christ has cost some of you because you've shared your stories with me. We have people in this church who have spoken Christ into very difficult situations at work and with extended family that has cost them in their relationships. Some of you will never get that job promotion because of your faith in Jesus Christ. And I'm here to tell you, you're in the right camp. Because to be centered on Christ 
will cost you, but it's not like, oh, this is so hard. No, you get to. You get to adore the Lord you love by standing for him, and whatever happens, happens, because he's worth it. He's the one who has come to die for you on the cross. He's resurrected, and you'll do anything for him. And I just want to encourage you. Whatever God's encouraging you to do in your heart, and you know, you know the Spirit's prompting when he's saying, speak for me. You know that, don't you? Do it! Doug, it's going to cost me. Do it! What does it cost us in time, in our relationships, in our money? Your money is not yours. Your possessions are not yours. What has been being a Christian cost you with your possessions, folks? And I have to tell you, I'm not speaking just to you. I'm speaking to me. I, I mean we, not you. I mean we. I went through this text again this week, and I thought, Finkbeiner, how about you, man? What are you doing in your neighborhood? What are you doing at work speaking the name of Christ there? What are you doing with extended family? We all have problems with extended family issues, don't we? Like, I've never met somebody that says, oh, yeah, you can go out as far as you want. Everybody's a Christian. Everybody loves each other. It is just peachy creamy. Like, I've never met anybody like that. I've met a lot of people that say, when I go to family get-togethers, I mean, you're walking on eggshells. Right? Am I right? And I know we need God's wisdom. We don't go in there like fire brimstone. I get all that. But, but what does it mean to speak a word for Christ? Because we worship him. He's everything. To, to know Christ is always to pay a price. But it's always worth it. Will you think through your life and where the Spirit of God has been prompting you in your heart, will you step out in faith by His power? And will you pay the price? Monetarily, relationally, in, in the words you speak, whatever it is. Because when you do, you are following in the path of the Magi and of Joseph. Do you see? The difference between this story and a Christmas carol is that this one is true. And how we react to it makes all the difference in the world. God is going to accomplish his, his purposes with or without Doug Finkbeiner. He doesn't need me, to be honest with you. But he calls me to himself to trust his son to become one of his children and I get to at whatever cost worship him until I'm in his presence one day. And that's what this Christmas story is all about. Father, Help us not to get so caught up into, into the uh, mundane and the rat race of this season that we lose the wonder of the coming of the Christ child and the privilege 
it is to know him and to sacrifice for him. If any here today, Lord, have never trusted Christ as Lord and Savior, may this be the day that they come and bow and they truly know the joy and freedom of forgiveness of sins that comes at the feet of Jesus. In his name I pray, amen.